Chapter 13 of Gossip in a Library. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eugene Smith. Gossip in a Library by Edmund Goss. Chapter 13. What Anne Lang Read. Who was Anne Lang? Alas, I am not sure. But she flourished one hundred and sixty years ago, under his glorious majesty George I, and I have become the happy possessor of a portion of her library. It consists of a number of cheap novels, all published in 1723 and 1724, when Anne Lang probably bought them. And each carries, written on the back of the title, quote, Anne Lang Book, not 1727, end quote which is doubtless the date of her lending them to some younger female friend. The letters of this inscription are round and laboriously shaped, while the form is always the same, and never Anne Lang, her book, which is what one would expect. It is not the hand of a person of quality. I venture to conclude that she who wrote it was a milliner's apprentice or a servant girl. There are five novels in this little collection, and a play, and a pamphlet of poems, and a bundle of love letters, all signed upon their title pages by the Iwida of the period, the great Eliza Haywood. No one who has not dabbled among old books knows how rare have become the strictly popular publications of a non-literary kind, which a generation of the lower middle class has read and thrown away. Eliza Haywood lives in the minds of men solely through one very coarse and cruel allusion to her made by Pope in the Dunciad. She was never recognized among people of intellectual quality. She ardently desired to belong to literature, but her wish was never seriously gratified, even by her friend Aaron Hill. Yet she probably numbered more readers, for a year or two, than any other person in the British realm. She poured forth what she called little performances, from a tolerably respectable press. And the wonder is that in these days her abundant writings are so seldom to be met with. The secret, doubtless, is that her large public consisted almost wholly of people like Anne Lang. Eliza was read by servants in the kitchen, by seamstresses, by basket women, by apprentices of all sorts, male and female, but mostly the latter. For girls of this sort, there was no other reading of a light kind in 1724. It was Eliza Haywood, or nothing. The men of the same class read Defoe, but he, with his cynical severity, his absence of all pity for a melting mood, his savagery towards women, was not likely to be preferred by, quote, straggling nymphs, end quote. The footman might read Roxana, and the hackney writer sit up after his toil over Moll Flanders. There was much in these romances to interest men. But what had Anne Lang to do with stories so cold and harsh? She read Eliza Haywood. But most of her sisters, of Eliza's great clientele, did not know how to treat a book. They read it to tatters, and they threw it away. It may be news to some readers that these early novels were very cheap. Anne Lang bought Love in Excess, which is quite a thick volume, for two shillings, and the first volume of Idalia, 
for Eliza was oui-desque even in her titles, only cost her eighteen pence. She seems to have been a clean girl. She did not drop warm lard on the leaves. She did not toddle up her milk scores on the bastard title. She did not scrabble in the margin, Emanuela is a foul wench. She did not dog's ear her little library, or stain it, or tear it. I owe it to that rare and fortunate circumstance of her neatness that her beloved books have come into my possession after the passage of so many generations. It must be recollected that Eliza Haywood lived in the very twilight of English fiction. Sixteen years were still to pass, in 1724, before the British novel properly began to dawn in Pamela, twenty-five years before it broke in the full splendor of Tom Jones. Eliza Haywood simply followed where, two generations earlier, the redoubtable Mrs. Aphra Bain had led. She preserved the old romantic manner, a kind of corruption of the splendid scuderie and calpernade folly of the middle of the seventeenth century. All that distinguished her was her vehement exuberance and the emptiness of the field. Anne Lang was young and instinctively attracted to the study of the passion of love. She must read something, and there was nothing but Eliza Haywood for her to read. The heroines of these old stories were all palpitating with sensibility, although that name had not yet been invented to describe their condition. When they received a letter beginning, quote, to the divine Lasilia, or quote, to the incomparable Donna Emanuela, quote, they were thrown into the most violent disorder. Quote, a thousand different passions succeeded one another in their turns, quote. and as a rule, quote, twas all too sudden to admit disguise. Quote. When a lady in Eliza Haywood's novels receives a note from a gentleman, quote, all her limbs forget her function, and she seeks fainting on the bank, in much the same posture as she was before she raised herself a little to take the letter. End quote. I am positive that Anne Lang practiced this series of attitudes in the solitude of her garret. There is no respite for the emotions from Eliza's first page to her last. The implacable Dumour, for such was her singular name, quote, continued for some time in a condition little different from madness, but when reason had a little recovered its usual sway, a deadly melancholy succeeded passion. When Bevilia tried to explain to her cousin that Emilius was no fit suitor for her hand, the young lady swooned twice before she seized Bevilia's cruel meaning, end quote. and then, ah, then, quote, silent, the stormy passions rolled in her tortured bosom, disdaining the mean ease of raging or complaining. It was a considerable time before she uttered the least syllable, and when she did, she seemed to start as from some dreadful dream, and cried, quote, It is enough. In knowing one, I know the whole deceiving sex. End quote. And she began to address an imaginary women's rights meeting. Plot was not a matter about which Eliza Haywood greatly troubled herself. A contemporary admirer remarked, with justice, quote, "'Tis love Eliza's soft affections fires. Eliza writes, but love alone inspires. 
Tis love that gives Delmont his madly charms, and tears Amina from her father's arms. These last named persons are the hero and heroine of Love in Excess or The Fatal Inquiry, which seems to have been the most popular of the whole series. This novel might be called Love Through a Window for it almost entirely consists of a relation of how the gentleman prowled by moonlight in a garden, while the lady, in an agitated disorder, peeped out of her lattice in, quote, a most charming dishabillé, end quote. Alas, there was a lock to the door of a garden staircase, and while the lady, quote, was paying a compliment to the recluse, he was dexterous enough to slip the key out of the door unperceived. Anne Lang. Quote, a sudden cry of murder and the noise of clashing swords quote, come none too soon to save those blushes which we hope you had in readiness for the turning of the page. Eliza Haywood assures us in Edelia that her object in writing is that quote, the warmth and vigor of youth may be tempered by a due consideration. End quote. Yet the moralist must complain that she goes a strange way about it. Idalia herself was, quote, a lovely inconsiderate, end quote, of Venice, who escaped in a gondola up, quote, the river Brent, end quote, and set all Vicenza by the ears through her, quote, stock of haughtiness, which nothing could surmount, end quote. At last, after adventures which can scarcely have edified Anne Lang, Adelia abruptly, quote, remembered to have heard of a monastery at Verona, end quote, and left Vicenza at break of day, taking her, quote, unguarded languishments, end quote, out of that city and out of the novel. It is true that Anne Lang, for two shillings, bought a continuation of the career of Adelia, but we need not follow her. The perusal of so many throbbing and melting romances must necessarily have awakened in the breast of female readers a desire to see the creator of these tender scenes. I am happy to inform my readers that there is every reason to believe that Anne Lang gratified this innocent wish. At all events, there exists among her volumes a little book of the play sold at the doors of Drury Lane Theatre when, in the summer of 1724, Eliza Haywood's new comedy of A Wife to be Let was acted there, with the author performing in the part of Mrs. Graspall. The play itself is wretched, and tradition says that it owed what little success it enjoyed to the eager desire which the novelist's readers felt to gaze upon her features. She was about thirty years of age at the time, but no one says she was handsome, and she was undoubtedly a bad actress. I think the disappointment that evening at the Theatre Royal opened the eyes of Anne Lang. Perhaps it was the appearance of Eliza in the flesh which prevented her old admirer from buying the secret history of Cleomena supposed dead, which I miss from the collection. If Anne Lang lived on until the publication of Pamela, especially if during the interval she had bettered her social condition, with what ardor must she have hailed the advent of what with all its shortcomings, was a book worth gold. Perhaps she went to Vauxhall with it in her muff, and shook it triumphantly at some middle-aged lady of her acquaintance, 
Perhaps she lived long enough to see one great novel after another break forth to lighten the darkness of life. She must have looked back on the pompous and lascivious pages of Eliza Haywood, with their long-drawn palpitating intrigues, with positive disgust. The English novel began in 1740, and after that date there was always something wholesome for Anne Lang and her sisters to read. End of chapter 13